This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Okay, it's really good to see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we just pray that you help us to understand your word and to really, in our hearts, appreciate what you've done for us. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, last week when I was preparing the Faith at Home talk for the parents, I remember coming across this truth that one of the worst things a parent can do to their child is to break a promise. Because as a parent, you never ever break your promises to your child. It's one of the worst things you can do. So I remember watching uh, this movie called Train to Busan, right? And I realized, actually, it's not a zombie movie. It's a family movie. Now, you might be wondering, how can it be a family movie, right? Well, actually, it is because at the very opening scenes, the daughter accuses the father that he never keeps his promises and that he had promised to take her to see the mother, but he never does. And that accusation or charge or complaint uh, sets the scene for the whole movie. All right. Now, if uh, the accusation is true from a human child to a human father, you never keep your promises, and that's such a terrible, terrible thing to do, then how much more so is it from a child of God to God the Father? And that is the big question of today's passage in chapter 9. So if you look with me, turn to me your Bible, so open up your Bibles. Okay, so you need to follow in the Bibles because um, this passage is a complicated one. And if you don't have it open before you, you will not follow what the Bible is saying and you'll only be listening to me. In verse 6 of chapter 9, it says, It is not as though God's word had failed. Okay, so this passage today basically is hinged around three questions. And the first question questions whether God keeps his promises, whether God keeps his word. Now, how do we end up to this question? How do we get to this point? Why is this question raised and why is it so important? Well, for those of us who have done our homework and read up from chapter 1 to 8 of Romans, you see that chapter 8 is the high point of the book of Romans. It's like a crescendo, climax to the argument. And last we read in chapter 8 was these very powerful promises of God. So verse 31 it says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. In verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Romans chapter 8 ends with these huge, huge promises that nothing can separate the people of God, the children of God, from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that if God is for us, who can be against us? But in chapter 9, the question is, are you really sure or not? Can God really keep his promises? And the reason is because when the Christian in Rome read the letter 
of the book of Romans that we are reading now, he would look out to the congregation and he would ask the question, God made all these promises to the people of Israel. But why is it within the church in Rome there are so few Jews? What happened to all these privileges? What happened to all these promises that were given to the Israelites? So what were all these privileges and promises? Well, if you look up here on the slide, you see in verse uh, 3 to 4, Paul himself says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and were cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. And remember, Paul was a Jew. The people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now that begs the question, because if the Jews, the people of Israel, had received all these promises, all these blessings, all these privileges, the adoption of sonship, temple worship, the glory of God among them, the covenants, the law, the promises, being from the very blood of Jesus themselves, then where are they now? Why is it when they look out in the congregation in the church in Rome, there are so few Jews and there are so few people of Israel? Because after all, if you look back to the very first promise in Exodus chapter 4, when God had taken Israel out of Egypt, he declared to Pharaoh, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you let my son go so he may worship me. So the church, the people of God in, in Rome would, would, would ask the question, can we trust the promises of God when it seemed as if the promises to the original people, Israel, had failed? So the question that is really asked is the next slide. Can God really keep his promises? Does God keep his word? Is God able to do what he is able to do? Well, if you turn back with me to verse 6, this is where Paul addresses the issue. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So what Paul says is, first up, not all Israel is Israel in terms of salvation. God had never promised that all of physical Israel, cultural Israel, all of the bloodline of Abraham would be saved. Instead, God had said that he would save only those that he chose. And what then happens is, Paul says, okay, do your homework. Look back at God's word. What did God promise Abraham? What did God promise to the first and second generations of Abraham? The first forefathers of Israel. Well, if you look at this slide up here. So Abraham had uh, two children. Uh, for those of you who have read the Bible, you know that he... He was married to Sarah, but then Sarah could not conceive. 
for many, many years. So, Sarah said to Abraham, her husband, sleep with my maidservant and uh, let her... Oh, no, yeah, no, don't click yet. Don't click yet. Don't click yet. Not so fast. And let her produce a son and heir for you. And that was Ishmael. But 15 years later, Abraham managed to conceive a child with Sarah and they had Isaac. Now, the same thing happened uh, later on. He says there were two children as well. But if you look at this incident, if you look at the two children, usually in the patriarchal society in the old-fashioned world, and I'm sure we're all very familiar with it as uh, Asians and Singaporeans, usually it is the eldest son who receives the inheritance. But instead, oh, go back again. Sorry, young kid. It was Isaac who actually received the inheritance. Again, for the next generation, if you look up here on the slide, the next generation, Isaac married Rebecca, And again, there were two children. There was Esau, the older, and Jacob, the younger. Obviously, Esau was older by a few seconds or minutes or how long because they were twins. But again, we would expect that the older son would receive the inheritance, but instead it was the younger, Jacob. Now, the question is, if you look at the way God has worked in history, not every child of Abraham is saved. Not all Israel receives the inheritance. But the second point is made when you actually look at this passage because God had said even before the children were born, which of the children would receive the inheritance and which would not. So again, if you look back to the verses, it's up here on the slide, you'll see that in the verses from 6 to 12, there are these verses in brackets, right? So pay attention to the words. You see there are these brackets. Uh, the brackets are not there for fun, right? The brackets are there because they're actually quoting what God had said much, much earlier to Abraham in the Bible. And what did God say to Abraham? He said, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And at the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And again, God had said to Isaac, the older will serve the younger. So the accusation that God's word had failed is not true. Because God never promised that all Israel would be saved, but only those who were chosen would be saved. And who were the chosen ones? The chosen ones were Jacob and Isaac. But poor Ishmael, And poor Esau, these were the ones who were not saved. So what we see in history is that God was using like a a, a winnowing process, like a selection process, in which there's only a remnant or a few who are saved, but then the others who are not. So to the question, has God's word failed? No, the word, the answer is God's word has not failed. Because God has chosen those that he's going to save. And that doesn't mean that all Israel will be saved, but only a few will be saved, the ones that God has chosen. Now, if you look up here on the slide, you'll see, right, very clearly, that as you look through the generations, not all Israel 
are Israel, in terms of spiritual Israel, in terms of saved Israel. Only the line of Isaac and Jacob. So he's saying to those people in Rome, say, look, if you look out to the congregation and you see only a few Jewish people, it is because I have chosen these few and this is the way that I've always acted in history. So the first question, right, was, if you look at the slide, does God keep his promises? Does God keep his word? Well, it's very clear from this passage that God keeps his word. Because he said that through Isaac, through Jacob, I will continue the line and I will continue your promises. And not Ishmael and not Esau. But that leads to another question. Because this will be a very real question because as we read there, Jacob, Esau, these people were, uh, uh, Jacob versus Esau, Isaac versus Ishmael, these people were chosen before they were even born. The promises that were given were given before these children were even born. So the question is, is God fair? Is it fair that God acts in this way? And that's what we read here in verse 14. Because in verse 14 it says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? See, do you feel that way? Do you feel that it's very unjust and unfair that God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael? That God chose Jacob instead of Esau? Because that seems very unfair that they were chosen before they were even born. It doesn't seem as if they had a choice. It seems very, very arbitrary. And it seems as if they didn't really have a say in anything. So how do we then understand how God works? Well, first of all, I think it's very clear that salvation is based on God's will and not our works. Right? Salvation is where the ball is not in our court, but God's totally. And I think that the charge of it being unjust and unfair is because our perspective of salvation is wrong. Because our perspective of salvation is based on what is our right. But actually, when you look at what the Bible says, salvation is rather based on God's mercy and compassion. See, look at what it says in verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, I want you to think for a moment. Let's say you're speeding on the road. I know some of you can't drive, but imagine that you're driving and you're speeding too fast on the road and a policeman stops you. Can you say to the policeman, I demand mercy. I demand compassion. You can't, right? If the policeman decides to let you off because he's feeling good that day or, you know, for whatever reason, it is it is his to give to you. Mercy and compassion are not things that you can demand, but mercy and, mer and compassion are things that are freely given. So imagine you're in a polytechnic or school or university and you get 49% in your exam, your final year exam. And uh, because you failed the exam, you have to do the whole year again. And somehow because your lecturer likes you or thinks that 
you know, there were some extra circumstances, compassionate circumstances, says, okay, la, we, we, we give you grace and compassion, and we, you know, if you do some extra work, we allow you to progress on to the next, the next stage. Can you demand, your lecturer say, I demand that you give me compassion, I demand mercy, that you let me go on. You can't, isn't it? And that's actually, when you look at this passage, it actually flows all the way back from chapter 1 to 8. Because in chapter 1 to 8, if you look at this slide, what do we learn? Uh, next slide. We learn in chapter 1 to 8 that if God were just, right, remember Romans chapter 3? If God were just, there is no one righteous before God. Every person deserves to be judged because there is no one who is righteous before God. Do you remember it saying that in chapter 3? You have to read it up yourself. There is no one righteous. There is no one good. All have turned away. So if we demand justice from God, if we say, God, we want you to be just, then actually no one deserves to be saved. But, as we read in chapter 1 to 8, Next slide. Because God relates to us in mercy and compassion, He sends Jesus, and instead of judgment falling on us, He takes that judgment and points it at Jesus in, at the cross in judgment. But think about this for a moment, this diagram. Can you demand to God and say, I demand, God, that you send your son Jesus to die for me on the cross? That's ridiculous, right? Can you can you bargain with God and say, God, you know, if I were a good person, if, that, if, if I do all these good things, I demand that you then send your son to die for me at the cross. No, God doesn't do bargains that way. You can try as hard as you want, but you cannot demand that God send his son to die for you on the cross. So what the Bible is actually saying to us here is that our perspective on salvation is wrong. Because salvation is not based on rights. But salvation is based on mercy and grace. See, the problem is that we're very rights-driven today, right? Everybody thinks that we have a right. We have a right to be happy. We have a right to do certain things. And we think salvation is a right too. It is my right to be saved. But actually, biblically, God says, no. Salvation is not about rights, but it's about mercy. In fact, you can summarize the whole of what God is doing in the Bible by that one word. Mercy. So I remember talking to someone a few weeks ago and I I suggested to him very politely that, hey, no, why don't you come together with me and read one of the Gospels with me? And I was very shocked because he said to me, the Bible is the root of all evil. I'm sure he got that quote wrong, but that's why he said the Bible is the root of all evil. And I was I was quite taken aback because he said, said it with a lot of, uh, up, you know, he was quite upset when he said that, and I said, why do you say that? He said, oh, because there are people in his family who believe in the prosperity gospel. And he says that the Bible is just all about giving money to the church, you know, about being rich. But you see, that's where he's wrong, isn't it? Because the Bible is not about prosperity or getting rich, but it's about God's mercy. Right? It's about God's compassion and mercy. So I was reading a church history book a few weeks ago. And uh, I was talking about the Orthodox Church. You know, we know a lot about the Catholic Church, but we don't know much about the Orthodox Church, right? The Orthodox Church is in Russia and in Serbia and in Greece. 
And actually, in the early church, the Orthodox Church was the central church before the Roman Catholic Church. But apparently, the, the Orthodox Church has this simple prayer known as the Jesus Prayer. And uh, in the 5th century, up to the 19th century, many, many people in the Orthodox Church prayed this prayer. And it's a prayer based on uh, the blind men and blind Bartimaeus talking to Jesus. And basically, the whole day, all they do is they pray this one-sentence prayer with their mind and heart and soul, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And I was thinking, actually, in many ways, that is a reflection of the whole Bible story, right? That's what, if you're going to ask God for anything, you wouldn't ask for money or blessings or health, you would ask God for mercy because that is at the heart of salvation. Right? Why does Jesus come? Why are we saved? Because of God's character of mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. So as we come to that second question, God is not unjust and unfair in choosing because God's grace and compassion are His to give and not for us to demand. But that leads then to a subsequent question, a third question. Okay, so the third question is there in verse 19. So look at me in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist His will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now we can understand the question, right? The question is saying, well, if God is choosing, then how can God blame people for choosing to sin or choosing to not become Christian? So take for instance, okay, let's say I, I take somebody, uh, okay, I'll choose Nick. Lah. Okay, let's say Nick, I, I, I kidnap Ruel, okay, and I say to Nick, Okay, uh, Nick, I want you to um, go rob a bank or hijack a Uber car or something, or, or grab taxi, and then, and then you know, and then come back with the money to me. Then I'll, I'll give Ruel back to you. Uh, well, if, if if Nick gets caught, then Nick can say to the judge, "Well, actually, I didn't really do this. It's not my fault, right? Why do you blame me? Because it's actually Andrew's fault because he kidnapped my son Ruel." And the judge will probably say, "Yeah, you're right. You know." You know, I'm the one at fault. So this is the argument that is being placed here. Isn't God at fault then? Isn't it God's fault? Isn't it God who's to blame? Because all the Jews, only a few chose, but then the rest turned away. That's God's fault, right? That's not the Jewish people's fault. Well, how does God answer this question or this accusation? Well, actually, verse 20 in the NIV that you're reading, the the new NIV, sort of, smoothens it out and makes it very gentle, right? Because it says, you know, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? But actually, when you read the original, it's basically saying, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? So, what he's already saying is, who are you? You're just a man, right? You're just like an ant, or much smaller than an ant before God. What, What is your place, your relationship to God, that you can, you can question and accuse God? 
And he gives us the illustration that actually we are like the clay and God is like the potter. So you know, clay, right? Clay is like these lumps of things where people make into objects, right? So you know, I, I, I'm a potter and there's a clay there and I can choose to make the clay into a vase or a cup or a saucer. But at the same time, I can also use the clay and I can make it into a, a, a thing where people spit into, right? Or I can make it into a toilet bowl. Or I can make it into a, a toilet sink. So the same clay can be made into different objects. Some of great refinement and honor and some for, I guess, dishonorable use. And what this really saying is, the question is one of a wrong understanding of our relationship with God. Right, that the problem is that <clears throat> in human arrogance, we think that God is only slightly bigger than us, or slightly better than us, or slightly wiser than us. But it says that actually we are like the clay before the potter. We are the creation and God is the creator. God is so far above us that, that we are like, like nothing. So I remember uh, this pastor, Philip Jensen, that I used to have in Australia. He said, you know, society likes to put God in the dock. You know, the dock is where the criminals sit, or the guilty sit, or the, the people that uh, sit in the dock where they're being questioned by the prosecutor and the judge. And he says, actually, who are we to put God in the dock? Because the reality is, is God is the judge, and we are the ones in the dock. And that's exactly what this passage is saying. It's saying that, look, we are like the clay and God is the potter. And how can we question God in terms of how he wants to make or create us in this world? So you think about it, right? So let's say I'm like uh, the clay and I've been made into the toilet bowl. I can't then say to God, hey, why did you make me to the toilet bowl? I wanted to be like the teacup. I wanted to be like that exquisite, really expensive uh, teapot. Well, God's position is, who are we to complain and challenge God? But I think the argument, actually, if we want to pay attention, this passage is really profound and deep, if you bother to look at it, right? But the question is actually even more fundamental than that, because the people who are asking this question are the Christians, those who are saved, so when you look carefully, the question actually becomes even more profound because we are the ones who are the, the teapots, we are the ones who are the sources, we are the ones who are the nice china, but yet we are questioning God as to why is it you made the, the toilet bowl, the toilet bowl, why is it, why didn't you make everybody like a teacup? Why didn't you make everybody like an object of honor? So I want you to pay very close attention to verse 21. Look at verse 21 and you'll get something out of it. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Okay, again, I think the, the Bible here has sort of flattened out what the language is saying. But if you look at some of the older versions, it just says that some have been made for honor and some have been made for dishonor. And what is really being said here is those who are made for honor are those who are made and chosen for salvation, whereas for those who are made for dishonor are made for judgment. 
And the people who are asking these questions, the people who are blaming God, these are the ones who are the chosen ones. These are the ones who are already made for honor. So he's saying the reaction that you have in blaming God, accusing God, questioning God, this is the wrong question for the Christian, the child of God. You see, look very closely at verse 22 to verse 23. I printed it up for you up on the slide so you can see exactly what is happening here. So look at the argument and pay attention closely. What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? What if He did this to make His riches, make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy whom He prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom He also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. Now, pay very close attention. He is saying that he actually chooses some and bears up with them in patience for destruction to, to face his wrath and power so that those who are objects of his mercy, those who are chosen to be saved, those who are made for honor, would actually know the riches of his glory. That's what he's really saying is, He's saying that when you see, when you are like the teacup and you see the toilet bowl, then what you should be saying is, thank God I am the teacup, not the toilet bowl. When I see myself made as the the saucer, the exquisite saucer, and I see another thing made as a spittoon, then I should say, thank God I'm made as a saucer. The reaction that we have when we who are saved see those who are not saved, it's not to question and blame God and say it is not fair and you are unjust, but rather you are to think, thank God that you are actually a recipient of God's grace and compassion. So let's come back again to the speeding ticket illustration. Alright, so again, you're driving your car, you went too fast, and um, the policeman stops you. And you know, you're thinking, oh, that's great, another couple hundred dollars wasted. How many demerit points? Don't know how many, right? But then the policeman says to you, oh, you know, I noticed you're speeding or whatever, but, you know, uh, for whatever reason, he says, okay, I'm going to let you off. He gives you grace and compassion. Now, you're thankful already. Ah, You're grateful. But imagine if you went home and you read on Facebook or something or your relative comes home and you're having dinner and you find out that, hey, your relative or your friend also was speeding today, also got caught by the police, but this friend of yours got fined, lost demerit points, and also has to go and see the judge. Now, how does that make you feel? It makes you feel even more grateful and more thankful for the grace and compassion shown to you. What you won't be doing is calling up the police station and saying, Hey, you know, ah, it's not fair, you know. I received grace and compassion and my friend didn't. Uh, you should judge me the same, right? Or why is it you didn't, didn't show grace and compassion to my friend, but you showed it to me? Right? It doesn't make sense. But that's exactly the way that we treat God, isn't it? It's like, you know, we shouldn't be bet- betting on lottery tickets, and definitely as a Christian, betting on TAB or EPL or something is definitely wrong, because that's what the Bible tells us. But imagine, you know, somebody wins a lottery ticket, gazillion dollar prize, okay? 
You never hear them saying, oh, that's not really fair. It's really, really unfair. Why did I win and all those other people lose? It's so unfair. Right? It's, it's, why is, why did this happen to me? No, they will say, yeah, I won. Isn't that really great? And that's the argument that is being, being shown here. That for the person who was there in the Roman church and he looks out and he's saying, why are there so few Jews? God is very unfair and unjust. That's the wrong perspective. The right perspective is to say, look, God has always chosen, God has always chosen His people and He's windowed them down and He's selected them and He's reduced them and I, thanks to God's grace and compassion, am one of those people. So I do know that this is actually true. I know of two people who are doctors and they used to go to church in university with me and they went uh, touring around the world and they went to various countries and when they came back, they were not Christians anymore. In fact, uh, the husband, I, I met of him not too long ago, is a 110% atheist. He's not just anti-Christian, he's anti-God. He just doesn't believe in God whatsoever. And I asked him why did he change 180 degrees from being a Christian before he left and then coming back from his holiday uh, and being a non-Christian. He said because he saw so many people around the world who were not Christians and were not saved, so he doubted God because he thought God was unfair. Now that's exactly the argument in Romans chapter 9. But he had the wrong perspective. The perspective should be that he should have been even more thankful that he was in a situation where he could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and he could come to salvation and thank God for God's grace. So in conclusion, do you remember uh, in the last election, there was a thing in the newspaper about the PAP minister Lim Suise? So I always remember, it was quite funny because he was giving a election speech and he said he was so grateful that his father's father, his grandfather, had moved from China to Malaysia. Henga. Right, remember that? Then he said he was so grateful because his father moved from Malaysia to Singapore. Henga. Well, he said that he was so grateful. But it wasn't his decision, right? I mean, it was his father's father's decision to move. And his father's decision to move, it was nothing to do with him. He didn't say it was so unfair, so unjust that all the other fathers and grandfathers didn't choose to move. No, he said, wow, I was very, I was so lucky, right? That they moved to Singapore and I'm where I am. Well, in the same way, when we look at God and we ask ourselves, why are we here? But then there's so many people who don't believe. Look, look outside now. Look, everybody's driving their cars around, they're playing sport, they're watching TV, they're probably sleeping in. Does that mean that God is very unfair? God is very unjust? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that God has chosen us. And we are the clay and God is the potter. And should we should be filled with the knowledge of His glory and be grateful for His grace and compassion towards us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may set aside our human ways of thinking 
and to recognize that your sovereignty and your choice of us before the creation of this world should fill us with joy, with thankfulness, with gratefulness. Dear Father, we want to come before you today and put before you any of our doubts or fears or accusations before you. We just pray for ourselves that we will we will truly be able to see where we stand before you. We are like the clay and you are the potter. But yet in your great glory and wisdom, you have chosen to make us vessels of honor, destined for salvation. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.